Ecclesiastes chapter 3. By now, pretty much everybody will know that we're in a series on suffering. If you're looking for Ecclesiastes, you'll find it after Psalms and Proverbs and before Song of Solomon and Isaiah. So we're on the fourth week of a, of a series on, on suffering, trying to lay a biblical foundation for how to approach suffering, how to deal with it, how to understand it. And one of the things that most of us probably do or have done at some stage in life is set something out in the future to look forward to. If you can cast your mind back, for some of you it'll not be that far, cast your mind back to the days of exams A-levels and GCSEs and university finals. And what you probably did was you had this period of months ahead of you of study and hopefully it was months preparation and just everything looked bleak because every day involved books and study and it seemed endless. And there's a good chance you probably hung something out in front of you to look forward to. Whenever these are over, I'm going to do this. You know, it used to be maybe just going for a feed or hanging out with your mates, but for sick formers nowadays, it usually involves Magaluf or, or something similar. And they start at this stage of the year to waste a lot of time in study periods looking at travel websites, figuring out where they're going to go after they mess up their A-levels. And some of us will do that with the working week. You know, we'll hit Monday morning and think, oh boy, there's a lot to be done this week. It's busy. And we'll say, we're at Friday night, I'm going to do this, or Saturday, I'm going to... And we hang something out in front of us to look forward to. Or if you're away traveling and you're away from your family, and you're just, you're working or you're doing something while you're away that's maybe not particularly enjoyable and you just can't wait to get home and to see them again. We do this instinctively. We, we like to just set something out there in the future to look forward to. Is that just our silly little way of dealing with difficulties? Or is there more to it than that? There's a verse tucked away in the middle of Ecclesiastes 3, or half a verse, that I want you to see. It's verse 11. It says at the start of the verse, He has made everything beautiful in its time. And then it says this, He has also set eternity in the hearts of men and women. Listen to that. He has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. There is something in the very design of a human being that involves eternity in our hearts. It's almost as if, if you can picture it in a silly way, as God was, was making man, and if you picture making man like somebody standing at the kitchen with a bacon bowl, putting in a few different ingredients to make something good, and God puts in lots of things from his character into the man because we are made in God's image. And then he reaches for this jar that says eternity on it and he puts a shake of eternity into the bowl and he mixes it up. He has put eternity in our hearts. What I take that to mean is you will always, always crave and yearn for eternity. There is something at the very core of your being that will not ever be satisfied in this life with anything. No matter what it is, even as a Christian, it will still not be completely fulfilled. 
Bono famously sang, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. He got criticized by Christians because they said, how can a Christian sing this? But even as a Christian walking with God, there is still a yearning. There's still a craving and a knowledge that not everything is as it should be. God has placed inside us a desire for more. You may have a notion in your mind of what, what it might be that would satisfy you in life. And you might think, if I had this job, this relationship, uh, this, this level of health, these possessions, whatever. You might think, if I had these things, I would be content. I would sort of sit back and, and just be happy enough to, to see out my days. But you wouldn't be content. If you got all of those things that you think you want, I can guarantee you, before you waste your time pursuing them, you still will not be content Because God has written something into the fabric of what it means to be a human being that you will always, always, always yearn for more. And the most satisfied, mature Christian on earth is still yearning for more. So don't try to fill that. The mistake that we make is that we point the yearning in the wrong directions. That craving that God has put within us for eternity, we try to meet that with other things. So we run after stuff and experiences and relationships instead of understanding that the yearning is a yearning for heaven. It's a yearning for Jesus. Close proximity with Jesus. Seeing Him. That is the yearning that God has placed within us. And when you read Romans Chapter 8, you find that that's a yearning that is not only within us as human beings, but is within creation itself. Romans 8, 22, Paul writes, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation itself, the planet, is groaning for that future day and yearning for it. And within every single one of us, there is that yearning, even as Christians. This is where if we peddle a gospel and tell people that becoming a Christian makes everything okay, they will be desperately disappointed because that's not true. In fact, it's far from the truth. Paul says we have received the first fruits of the Spirit. We've received it already, but yet still we are groaning and we're yearning for more even through this life. We're yearning for heaven. Not pie in the sky when you die, but we're yearning for Jesus. Whenever Paul or whenever John sees a revelation of heaven in the book of Revelation, he, he tries to describe a lot of what he sees and he describes creatures and colors and precious stones and all these things that, he, that, he's, that he's seeing in the vision. But he is drawn into the center of it all. In Revelation 4, he sees a throne And in Revelation 5, he sees a lamb in the midst of the throne. In the very heart of what heaven is, it's where Jesus is. That's heaven. We don't really know exactly what it might look like. Some portions of the scripture try to describe it. Artists historically in the church have made an absolute horlicks out of trying to paint it. 
I don't know about you, but when I look at artistic representations of heaven, I don't want to go. It looks boring. I'd be quite self-conscious about the way people dress in heaven. You know, they look like they're just floating around with wee nappies on, with their harps on the clouds, playing songs all day. I'd be bored out of my mind. Do you know you'll work in heaven? Work's not evil. Jesus said, you know, you've been faithful over a few things. You know, I will make you master over many things. You think you're just going to sit about all day and do nothing? We're going to reign with him. I don't know what that's going to look like, but we'll be busy and we'll be happy. We'll not be busy and worn out and exhausted, but we will be doing the things that Jesus designed us to do in the first place. Heaven is where he is. First and foremost, that should be our instinctive response when we think of heaven. It's where Jesus actually is. Now, in the context of what we've been talking about this last few weeks, how does that help someone who is suffering? It's all well and good to say, well, you know, heaven's out there in front of us and we're yearning for it. But how does that help someone who this week has a bill to pay that they can't afford or has a medical appointment that they are dreading? Or has a relationship situation that is tormenting them or is absolutely weakened to their core by constant battles with temptation? How does this help? When a person's at rock bottom, and this is the truth of the gospel, when a person is at rock bottom, the only thing that can ease their heart and ease their suffering is the realization that this is not all that there is. It's so important that you get me. If you have an idea of life that what you are now experiencing is all that there is and you have to make it as good as you possibly can, you are living completely out of kilter with the Bible. You're just not in sync at all with the heart of God. This is not all that there is. The worst thing you you can tell someone who is suffering is it'll all work itself out. It'll all be all right. For some people that are suffering, it will not all be all right. And to come out with some glib statement like that is to really undermine what they are going through The Bible does not give us any reason to just say to someone, oh, it'll all be okay. What the Bible gives us a reason to say is, this is not all there is. This life is not all that there is. There is more. And we need to encourage people to get their gaze fixed on heaven and on eternity. Look at Colossians chapter 3, if you would, please. Colossians chapter 3. A couple of verses here that just, I can remember very early days of walking with God and, and these verses getting a grip of me at the start of this, this chapter. I've watched people suffer recently. I've watched people in, in a professional context suffer. And people who have no fixed point to cling on to. Everything that was firm and stable in their lives has been taken away from them. They've nothing to cling to. Nothing. And they're literally just being blown about. It says in Colossians 3.1, Since you have been raised with Christ. Now does that apply to you or not? Probably applies to most, but might not apply to all of you. 
Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. What is your heart set on? Wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is, Jesus said. And Paul says, because you've been raised with Christ, one of, the, one of the distinguishing features of a person who has actually encountered Jesus and been raised with him is that they will have their hearts set on things above, not on this world. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. There again, the definition of heaven. It is where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Look at verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If all of your life is focused horizontally on earthly things, whenever suffering comes, you will be devastated. Because all of your investment, all of your laying up of treasure has been this life, this earth, this current experience. And because you can't see any further ahead than that, when suffering comes and screws up your current experience, you're devastated. The whole carpet is pulled out from under you. Paul says the same thing in in Philippians. If you just turn back a couple of pages in Philippians chapter 3, look at the way he talks. And you will notice this as you read Paul. He's obsessed with the future. He's obsessed with Jesus. He is a man completely consumed with what is lying out ahead of him, always focusing on it. Look at Philippians 3 verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal To win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's a goal. There's a prize. There's something out in the future. This is not a silly little thing that we do to get through life. This is at the very core of who we are. He has set eternity in our hearts. And he has designed us to focus on the goal. And the goal is Jesus. The goal is eternity with him. He is the prize. And verse 15 says, All of us who are mature should take a view of such things. Are we mature, church? When was the last time we actually gave any thought to eternity and lifted our gaze just from what goes on all around us? Are we mature? Paul throws that out and it's almost, it's almost a dig. There's a wee spiciness to that statement all of us who are mature should take such a view of things and he goes on a few verses later to talk about people who are in verse 18 enemies of the cross of Christ their destiny is destruction their God is their belly that doesn't just mean they worship food it means their whole focus is on their own appetites and their own desires And their glory is in their shame. Look at the end of verse 19. Their mind is on earthly things. Get this. Enemies of the cross are those whose mind is just consumed with earthly things. Could it be that we're immature? Could it be that we are actually enemies of the cross? Because we're so consumed with this life and we never think or focus beyond the here and now. Contrast that with what Paul says in verse 20, a lovely phrase. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. 
We're like people who are constantly traveling, holding documents, and we are going to our destination where we belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul was not the only one who knew about the importance of heaven and the importance of having an eternal perspective. Jesus, of course, had the same thing. And in John chapter 14, his disciples are getting a wee bit twitchy because he's just broke bread with them. They've just observed the Last Supper. He's talked about his death. Judas has been put out of the room, told to go and do what it is that he's, that he's planning to do. And the rest are getting a little bit unsettled. And Jesus says to them in chapter 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust in me. And he doesn't then go on to say, I'm going to whoop death. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm going to roll that stone back in three days' time and come out and be triumphant. He doesn't focus on those things. He doesn't say, fellas, it's all going to be okay. In fact, he says to Peter just a, a few days later, he says to Peter in John 21, you're going to die a pretty ugly death, Peter. It's not going to be all okay. And I can imagine, <laughs> Peter was a great mate to have. Like Peter, You just picture the scene. Peter and John are standing there and Jesus is saying to Peter, you know, describing to Peter, Peter, this is, is you're, you're going to do your own thing for a few years, but there's going to come a time you're not going to be able to do your own thing anymore because you're going to be crucified like me. You're going, you're going to be executed, Peter. And Peter's instinctive response is, what about John? What's going to happen to him? <laughs> I'm sure John's thinking, shut up, mate. Like, you didn't say anything about me. It's you he's talking to. Peter, it, it's not all going to be okay, Peter. It's going to be horrible. And tradition has it, and this is just tradition, but tradition has it that, that Peter was crucified upside down and also has it that he was forced to watch his family being executed before he was executed himself. Jesus didn't say, Peter, it's all going to be all right. He said, it'll be okay, mate. It'll work itself out and you'll have a good retirement. He didn't say that. In John 14, what he says is, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Jesus says, guys, get your focus fixed on eternity. It will all be okay then. <laughs> but it might not all be okay before then. Get your gaze fixed on eternity. We are called to be people who have an eternal perspective. In 2 Corinthians 4, and this is where I'll finish out today, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about this. Second Corinthians is, is probably Paul's most biographical letter where he talks most about his own life and talks a lot about his own suffering. In fact, if, if you want to get a new Christian to read something, probably start with something else because <laughs> as you go through 2 Corinthians... Um, you'll be seriously rethinking this whole life of, of faith and following Jesus. In chapter 3, in the first part of chapter 4, Paul talks about the glorious gospel. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, cheap pots, no value in them. 
just ordinary, everyday things. They're not pretty and they're not special. And the reason Paul says this is because in Corinth, people were coming in and peddling a false gospel. Have you ever heard of the word peddling? I'm not talking about bicycles. A peddler is somebody who sells cheap garbage. You know, if you go to country comes to town, you'll see peddlers up and down both sides of the street just selling tat. Peddlers sell stuff that's cheap. And Paul has said earlier in 2 Corinthians that peddlers have come into town to sell a cheap gospel. And these guys look impressive. Paul did not look impressive. He was short, God bless him. And he was not a very eloquent public speaker, even though he was a powerful man of words when he wrote. He was not an impressive figure. And he was constantly being criticized because of the weaknesses that he carried. You know, proponents of the health and wealth gospel have to get over the fact that Paul was frequently sick. A doctor traveled with him, for goodness sake. Luke was a doctor and traveled with Paul nearly all the time. Paul was a man of constant, frequent weaknesses and illnesses. He's the one who prayed to God three times for a thorn in the flesh to be taken away. And it wasn't taken away. Whatever it was, it wasn't healed. And Paul says in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, what he's going to do is he's going to glory in, in these weaknesses. He's going to gladly talk about them because he doesn't want glory to come to him. He wants the glory to go to God. And whenever the treasure is, a, is seen inside a broken clay pot or a cheap, unattractive clay pot, all the glory goes to the treasure, not the pot. So Paul is happy to talk about his weaknesses, and he does it over and over again in 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verse 8 and 9. In verse 8, he says, we are hard-pressed on every side. Later in the verse, he says, we are, we are perplexed. That means that we don't know where to turn. It also, the word also could possibly mean we've ran out of resources. It says in verse 9, we're persecuted. And also in verse 9, we are struck down. And verse 10 says, we're always carrying about in our body the death of Jesus. This is suffering. This is not triumphalistic, you know, let me climb on my private jet and fly into town and preach the gospel and make a few pounds while I'm at it. This is suffering. Real suffering. So that the glory will go to God. He, he, he gives other lists in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 6, look, at, look from about verse 3 or 4 in, in 2 Corinthians 6. From verse 4, he talks about great endurance, troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger. He goes on in verse 8 to talk about bad report and good report. He says, we're genuine, but we're regarded as imposters. We're known, but we're regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Do you want to follow Jesus? You want to have all your problems straightened out? <laughs> the gospel of it will all be okay. It doesn't cut it in the New Testament. You go on a bit further to, to chapter 11, in case you're not getting the point, he goes again in chapter 11, in verse 23, he says, I have worked much harder, 
been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles, in the city, in the country, at sea, and from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. Who wants to, who wants to go into the ministry? Eh? <laughs> this is reality. And Paul is happy, happy to talk about realities. He's happy to, to talk about what it is that he's going through because he wants all the glory to go to Jesus and none of it to go to him. So he's quite happy to say, I'm totally broken. I'm a mess. I look like nothing. I have no skills or gifts All the glory, if God is doing anything, all the glory goes to him. And again, I have to ask those that that peddle a gospel that we should all be healthy and wealthy on a continual basis, what do they do with these passages? (laughs) Certainly don't read them. In verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 4 that we read earlier, Paul says there's a limit. He says, we're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. He says, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. He says, we're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. How do you deal with all of this, Paul? How do you deal with it? Why didn't you just quit, mate? You know, you were a good Pharisee. Why didn't you go back to just being a, a teacher in the, in the synagogue, being a Pharisee and, and making a few pounds and having a bit of influence? Why would you bother? How do you deal with it? You don't go to Paul after he's received 40 lashes minus one and say it'll be all right, mate, because he has to go through it four more times in his life. How do you deal with it? Paul says in in verse 16 of the same chapter, after listing those things, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, we do not lose heart. How do you not lose heart in the face of all of that? How do you not get discouraged? The only answer is that this is not all there is. Verse 16, he says, Outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Yes, I'm getting bruised and I'm getting battered. Yes, I've run out of resources. Yes, I've known hunger and I've known shipwreck and I've known all of these things. Those are all on the outside. Inside there's something different happening. He has put eternity in our hearts. There's a renewal taking place on the inside that you cannot see right now. The world is obsessed with renewing the external appearance. We're obsessed with clothes and makeup and plastic surgery and and all sorts of things to desperately cling on to youth and beauty. And Paul says the outward is wasting away, but the inward is being renewed. He goes on in verse 17 to say, our light and momentary troubles. Have you ever read that and just thought that is offensive? (laughs) 
That is offensive to describe our troubles as being light and momentary. But what Paul is doing is he's comparing them. Read the, read the rest of the verse. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light momentary troubles in this life are achieving an eternal weight of glory. The sufferings that we go through are somehow achieving something for us in eternity as we go through them. This is not all there is. He goes on in verse 18 to say, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. In suffering, Paul the Apostle says, you need the eternal perspective or you will not cope with it. You will lose heart and you will crumble if you don't realize that this is not all there is. And don't misunderstand verse 18 where he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. That doesn't mean you ignore present realities. I've encountered some Christians who pretend there's nothing wrong. They talk as if the illness is not there. They think that talking a certain way will make it go away. Paul does not say we ignore the realities. He says we choose not to fix our gaze on them. We choose to fix our gaze somewhere else. We choose to fix it in eternity. Now Francis Chan has a rope that comes out now and again during his sermons. Have you seen his rope? Many people have seen Francis Chan's nice white rope. Only a few of you. I brought a rope. I don't have a nice white one. This, this cheap yellow and black one that I got in B&Q. I hope I don't pull your gear over. This is, this is the rope. I was going to use the fairy lights, but I thought it, it could confuse you and you could start thinking of reincarnation, so I thought I'd better bring the rope. <laughs> you know, just not go there. But in, in the illustration, and it's pretty simple, you've got your little blue bit at the end of the rope. This is your life. This bit here this is your life. The rest of the rope, which for me goes over to the other side of the room and is tied onto that amp, the rest of the rope is eternity. In reality, the rope goes out the door through the car park down the street and around the world over and over and over and over again. Never ends. Never ends. Never ends. We've got our eyes fixed on this little blue bit. And so many of our decisions are all focused on this bit. And we never ever take any time to think about the rest of it. Ever. Teachers are the worst in the world at this. You will not find any human on the planet more obsessed with their pension than teachers. It is absolutely embarrassing listening to them talk about it. They have all of these calculations that they can do just like that on the spot over coffee in the staff room, working out what changes will affect their pension and what percentage will go down or what percentage will go up. And these little fractions that it is unbelievable how good they are at. I'm not talking about people who are 60 and ready to retire. I'm talking about people in their 30s and 40s. They've got this all played out in their mind. They're focused on their pension. Well, how will that affect? If I do that, will that you might never get it. I have no guarantee that I will get back to the house after this meeting. All right? 
Why do we make these decisions? And why do we allow these things? Why are we slaves to these things? And just focusing on this tiny, tiny little bit of the rope. And forgetting all of the rest of it that goes on and on and on and on and on. So you maybe make a decision that allows you to engage in more work for the kingdom of God. But affects your stinking pension by about 5%. Who cares? Who cares? Think bigger. This life is not all there is. And if we are so focused on some little discomfort in this tiny section of the rope. To the point that we ignore all of this. And yet the decisions we make here affect everything else. Everything else. When's the last time you thought about the rest of the rope? Hmm? When's the last time you made a decision that had eternal consequences? Or you ignored a comfortable decision that you could have made. Some comfortable course of action that you could have taken. That might have made the blue bit that little bit easier. But you instead ignored that comfortable choice. And you focused on the eternal consequences. Young people are great at it as well. Conversations every year about university and UCAS and course choices. And will I do this and will I do that? And you're just thinking, man, you know, what about the rest of the rope? What about all that comes after that? Do you have an eternal perspective? Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5. And he says in verse 1, we know that if the earthly tent, our body, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And he says in verse 5, it is God who has made us for this very purpose. Get that. It is God who has made us for this very purpose. For what purpose? For eternity. We're made for eternity. We are not made for this brief moment. We're made for eternity. Marshall Shelley was a writer in Christianity Today. And whenever Marshall and his wife were pregnant with their first child, the doctor said to them at the first scan, and I quote, we have some problems. The fetus has a malformed heart. The aorta is attached incorrectly. There are missing portions of the cerebellum, a club foot, a cleft palate, and perhaps a cleft lip. It is a chromosomal abnormality, and it is a condition incompatible with life. And an abortion was advised. And they said no. During the birth they were again advised they should terminate the baby. And they said no. And Toby was born at 20 past 8 on the 22nd of November 1991. And died at 22 minutes past 8 on the 22nd of November 1991. And people came to Marshall afterwards and said why did God create Toby for two minutes. And Marshall said to them, 
God did not create him for two minutes. He created him for eternity. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 5, it is God who has made us for this very purpose, for eternity. And whether we live two minutes, two decades, 60, 70, 80 years, a billion years into eternity, it will not matter how long you have lived, it will matter how you lived. It will not matter how long you lived for, it'll matter who you lived for. What governs, who governs your decisions? Is it all about you being comfortable for the little blue bit and for that elusive little bit at the end where you think you're going to lift your feeble pension? Is that all that matters? He created us for eternity. And to finish off with the rest of verse 5, says that God has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Those of you that are filled with the Holy Spirit, God sees that as a deposit, a down payment, a first installment that is a guarantee of the full, complete payment at a later stage. The Holy Spirit in our hearts is God's guarantee of the life that is to come. We get a glimpse of it now. It briefly breaks into the present. The the kingdom has come. The Holy Spirit in our hearts is the proof of what lies ahead. And I think that, that verse where Paul says that God has given us the Spirit as a deposit... That echoes right back to Ecclesiastes 3, where a couple of thousand years earlier, Solomon said, he has put eternity in our hearts. The Holy Spirit within us, he has put eternity in our hearts and caused us to yearn for that which is to come. Even Jesus himself on the cross, to which we will turn our attention in a minute, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Even Jesus had something out in front of him to get him through the suffering that he went through. This life is not all there is, folks. Those of you that are young and healthy and fit and free and easy to make decisions, don't fall into the trap of wasting your years trying to create a comfortable blue section of the rope. Because if you do that, and then suffering comes and knocks on your door. Without an eternal perspective, the house will come down very quickly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that you will cause all of us to set our affections on things above. To not be consumed selfishly with this life and our own comforts. And our own ambitions, Lord. I pray, Father, you will stir up eternity in our hearts. I pray the Holy Spirit that you have placed within us will just become an ache for glory. A yearning for the future kingdom. A yearning to be with you, Jesus. And that that will cause us to not lose heart in suffering. 
in persecution, in trials, in the things that we go through as we see your kingdom come and as we see you build your church and as we follow you, Lord, all the trials that come our way. Father, that we would not lose heart because we know this is not all that there is. That there is a glory that awaits that is worth anything we have to put up with in this life. Lord, help us to lay a foundation that will allow us to stand no matter what comes our way. You've stamped us for eternity, Lord. You've made us for eternity. Take away all our selfishness, Lord, that wants life to be perfect and refocus it, Lord in a yearning for your kingdom and the desire to see many, many people know you, Lord.